Welcome back to the Digital Leaders Podcast, Episode 2. I'm Robin Knowles, and today I'm meeting Professor Mark Thompson. Mark is a Strategy Director at Leading Digital Consultancy Methods. He's also a Professor of Digital Economy in INDEX, the Initiative for the Digital Economy at Exeter University. He specializes in public sector ICT strategy, government liaison, utility-based service delivery models, ICT for development, and practice-based organizational theory. Until recently, he taught the MBA course at Cambridge Judge Business School, and in the past, he's been an ICT advisor to George Osborne when he was UK Shadow Chancellor. He's a high-profile figure in the digital transformation of government space. Hello, Mark. Hi, Robin. Good to talk. Great to have you on the Digital Leaders Podcast. Thank you for Very joining. Well. Thank you. So, um, before we find out a bit more about what you're doing now, can you tell me a bit about growing up and your early inspirations that led you to being an academic and an entrepreneur? Sure. Um, I think I've always had a, a, a been a bit of a hybrid, I suppose, between between the business uh, and the kind of, uh, I suppose, the conceptual, the academic uh, side of me. And uh, in my early career, uh, I spent uh, three or four years working for uh, what's now Accenture uh, and had a great exposure, actually, in particular to, to governments and the public sector's uh, use of technology. This was in the early 1990s um, in the so-called era of, of big tech. Uh, and, and the tech was big, and it was very vertically integrated. And if you wanted, um, you know, a change in legislation or something, it quite often, if you were a large department, uh, involved marching, uh, you know, fifty to one hundred uh, individuals up to um, up to a client site and rebuilding the stack, kind of uh, from from top to bottom. Um, so had a, had some early exposure to that. Um, also, I had a great. I guess I was a bit of a year off victim. So uh, when I was uh, when I was eighteen, nineteen, I spent a very formative year uh, teaching in in Kenya, actually, um, uh, right out uh, in the countryside. Um, and as I began to get more into technology in my my early career, I guess there was a sort of niggling, kind of wondering, did did in, in my, my my area of interest was Africa, but it could be any less developed economies. Did they really have to go through the kind of same painful process? Of developing administrations um, with all of their kind of administrative silos and legacy structures, and kind of follow uh, follow people like the UK, or could they just leapfrog quite a lot of that actually and just start to consume some of it? And and some of those questions led me to to do a, a further degree at uh, at SOAS School of Oriental African Studies, and then um, I managed to talk my way into to Cambridge to do a PhD uh, looking at. Um, what was then kind of emerging tech and, and often called um, ICT for development, so technology uh, for development, to kind of look uh, at some of those questions. Carried on uh, all the time uh, working uh, for Methods, the organization I, I co-run uh, today. Um, and I suppose that in turn started to uh, build my confidence, I suppose. So when you're kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, in your early 30s and you're standing in front of uh, MBAs, um, I've become a lecturer by this point. Uh, Starting from the MBAs who are only maybe three or four years younger than you, and uh, you've got a theatre of kind of 180 of them uh, with their arms folded for a three and a half hour lecture, uh, and the body language is saying, "Well, what have you got to teach us?" Um, it builds confidence quite quickly, um, and uh, and as my confidence grew, 
I suppose I started to direct some of that questioning myself uh, onto, um, onto, in particular, the UK public sector domain. In other words, realizing that public services, whether, whether you're in, in Kenya or in, in, in Britain, actually have a, a lot in common in terms of the opportunity for the state. Um, and that, in turn, uh, over the years, started to grow into what's, what eventually became uh, Cambridge Judge Business School's uh, Digital Business MBA program, an advanced digital business MBA program. And then I developed a habit of, uh, of running executive education sessions uh, with senior executives that starts really literally with what is the difference between the internet and the web? And you'd be surprised how many uh, stewards of major multinational organizations struggle with that question. Um, it's, it's interesting. Um, and, and by the end of that kind of sheep dip, uh, end with, you know, why we need to be readdressing our, our business models, uh, thinking about platform plays and all sorts of exciting business questions. And I guess maybe later in the chat, we'll get to uh, thoughts about digital leadership. But um, I come from the firm opinion that it's all really about, about the business and challenging the business. Um, we can usually always hire talented technologists, although, of course, um, they're pretty rare in the market at the moment, but you can, you can ultimately hire a great technologist. Um, I, I, I guess uh, my, my vision of a digital leader is somebody who spans the ability to talk tech with the ability to translate that into business implications. So, so I got sort of a bit more confidence um, there. And then um, uh, I, I've had a long-standing kind of collaboration um, uh, with uh, somebody that, um, that I guess some listeners will be familiar with, um, chap with Liam Maxwell. Um, and uh, Liam and I work with uh, some other uh, great people like Jerry Fishenden and Simon Wardley um, and uh, William Heath, Rollins, to uh, put together um, a document called Better for Less, um, which was just in the kind of pre-coalition government era when, when the Tories were just kind of wondering what their policy on technology should be. Um, and that was kind of exciting. And just prior to that, I'd done the report for George Osborne um, looking at um, uh, the implications of the internet and, and open source and open standards. And the two were kind of said in the same same sentence, which just shows us how far we've come since then. I, I was a whistleblower um, uh, for the uncomfortable statistic that of a 21 billion tech spend in, in public sector uh, in about uh, 2008, nine, 80% went to 12 organizations, only one of whom arguably paid any tax in the UK. Um, I'm going to pick you up on the better for less because yeah. if you had written that report shortly after the economic crash, that, that would kind of, was it just sort of fortuitous that, that you decided that digital could deliver better for less without the sort of the motivation behind it of needing to save expenditure in the public sector? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, to, my, to my recollection, it was entirely fortuitous. There was no link there uh, at all. Uh, but, but obviously, it, it massively helped, I think, our agenda that there was suddenly a, a, an increased burning platform, I suppose, uh, in, the, in the public sector. It's not that we'd wish a crash on anybody, but um, if there's a time to convince people to strive to achieve better for less by taking better technology decisions in business, then, uh, then it was there. I, I'm not, by the way, politically affiliated. I've, I've, I've done um, some, some sort of contributory work to Labour's digital review, et cetera, as well. Always um, keen to point that out. But, but it did catapult a small group of us into an enviable position for, for a little while um, uh, with the Cabinet Office Efficiency and Reform Group um, around about 2010 to 2012. Um, where we where we had the, the kind of the fortuitous alignment of, of, of the stars um, and, and and the planets uh, in in an MCO Minister of Cabinet Office um, Francis Ward who absolutely 
uh, got it and stood behind what we were trying to do, um, and and some senior administrators who are very committed um, to that project, and, and it enabled us to do a number of policy initiatives. So um, there was there was a questioning of the predominance of the systems integrator kind of role uh, and a parliamentary inquiry into that, um, that that used the word oligopoly, I think, for the first time, um, and we were championing the use of open standards by default, opening up the market to SMEs, um, the introduction of spend controls, which is quite important, so people couldn't go and just buy whatever they wanted anymore without without justifying it. The beginning of what became G Cloud, so a commoditization of of the purchase function a little bit, uh, and uh, and some 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 more work on open source uh, as to when that should be uh, used. Um, in, the public realm. So we did some kind of useful work that I think probably laid quite a lot of the environmental groundwork for uh, what became a government digital service, GDS, uh, after the, the Marshall Amesworks report. So that was um, that was a very exciting journey. Uh, and subsequently to that, I think it's been one of, of kind of, uh, I've been a constructive, critical friend, I think, to GDS um, uh, throughout um, some of the ensuing Years, um, I think the landscape has now begun to change, which is which is quite interesting. Um, I think we went through a period after the uh, after the efficiency reform group where there was a lot of energy um, in 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 GDS. There was a lot of energy in what what became the sort of uh, government uh, digital community, um, and much of it was very positive and and I think um, accomplished. A huge amount, actually. Uh, not everybody would agree with that, but I absolutely believe that that's the case. I think, uh, latterly, some of it became a little bit more about building and delivering technology in the right way, rather than the commitment to business model redesign itself. In other words, it became a little bit of a CDO, CTO uh, engagement, rather than factor chief exec engagement, which is I firmly continue to believe digital is all about. The landscape has evolved over the last 10 years quite a bit. Yeah. Definitely, and you've clearly been directly involved in, in much of that. So before we get into kind of what you're doing now and, and sort of talk a bit more about digital leadership, I'm keen to uh, ask you about, the, I guess, the two organizations. But let's start with your company methods. What, what is it doing in the digital space? What, what is it currently working on? That's a, I'm sure some of our, I hesitate to say this, I'm sure some of our leaders uh, listening today haven't heard of methods. So um, tell us a little bit about methods. My opportunity to do some shameless, uh, shameless marketing. Well, for those of you who haven't heard of, of methods, um, we've been around for about 25 years, often a well-guarded secret, and we predominantly spe- uh, specialize in, in, in public sector. So about 95% of our work is in public sector. And uh, we're organized into uh, three divisions. We have a digital uh, services division. Um, we have what we call a business and technology division, which addresses quite a lot of the lifting and the shifting, uh, the infrastructure, um, some of the kind of heavy migration, some of the contract disaggregation that, that underlies um, digital journey and digital transformation as well. And that's underpinned by um, by quite a vibrant resourcing uh, division as well. And we've got a couple of sister companies. Um, we've got Methods Analytics, um, which is a pr- predominantly healthcare analytics uh, and pop health uh, uh, analytics business, and Core Azure, uh, which kind of does what it says in the tin, in other words, help predominantly public sector organizations to re-architect and, and move to the Microsoft plan. So um, we, we kind of span, I think, I think if, if I had to characterize methods, it's yes, of course, we have always been relatively disruptive in the thought leadership arena about where government technology should be heading. But I think maybe unlike um, some of our, our competitors, we don't just do the digital uh, redesign uh, side of it. I think we take the 
the unbundling, the disaggregation, um, the, the contractual um, legacy um, uh, part of digital transformation pretty seriously as well, and, and are geared up uh, to do that. Um, and uh, I think you know all the indications are um, that we're going we're going great guns. We're, we're growing uh, pretty quickly. Uh, we're hiring for anybody who's uh, interested. Um, always hiring good people, um, and really starting to do some some more uh, interesting work um, than ever before um, in, in a variety of uh, variety of ways, from, from front end service redesign uh, in a sort of digital uh, kind of boutiquey type of way to some really quite um, quite large um, service management. Uh, Kind of contracts engagements and some some quite a bit of emerging uh, emerging tech as well. Maybe I'll talk a bit about more about emerging. Yeah, tech. yeah, we can come come back to that. So you're also the other half of uh, well, I'm not sure that it's half, but the other part of what you do is you're a professor of digital economy in Index, which is the initiative for digital economy at X University, and of course you're now a professor. Congratulations! So well, thank you very much. Yeah, I think a new initiative. It was one. Yes, it is. Um, it was uh, after about I don't know, um, sixteen or so years um, in Judge Bishop School in Cambridge. Cambridge is, is such a wonderful place. It's a very hard place ever to leave, actually. And I think my wife and I both we both hit fifty, and we both kind of fancied a bit of a change, and a bunch of things came together. Um, and and I yeah, I, I kind of fancied doing what is effectively an academic startup. So having had some startup experience and methods. I was always a bit tickled by the, there's a kind of emerging um, discussion about uh, sometimes called the death of the business school or certainly people challenging the traditional um, business school MBA uh, model. And we wanted to do something a bit different and had an opportunity um, in Exeter Business School um, that was also kind of like-minded. So basically, Exeter Business School has set up a, a new unit. Index is called Initiative for Digital Economy in Exeter. It's a hideous acronym, but I guess we had to come up with one. And it's pretty exciting. We're, we're at the moment in a, in a WeWork, um, WeWork offices in the South Bank, um, and we are a small group of academics who are focused squarely on thinking about aspects of the digital economy. Uh, my own kind of, I guess, love is, is, is public services and public sector and digital transformation, but we look at the intertwining of, of risk. I think there's, there's quite a lot of uh, increased risk, uh, cyber and otherwise, uh, trust, uh, and I think that's particularly topical at the moment, given some of the kind of Facebook um, kind of uh, and, and the recent DCMS uh, inquiry and one or two publications recently have come out um, and value as well. So what is it that we value? How do organizations deliver value uh, in the digital age uh, and what should their kind of business models be? So it's great to be working with a clutch of people who are pretty obsessive, uh, like me, around these sorts of questions. Um, and, and it is like a startup. So we are, we are also hiring in the, in the University of Exeter, if there are any uh, academics out there who fancy joining a crack digital unit. <laughs> Excellent. So uh, I think that's two, two job offers yeah. you've, that you've been able to work into, your, into today's podcast. You mentioned that, uh, obviously, you used to teach the MBA at Cambridge Just Business School, sort of yeah. with 180 leaders. In I think that they're close to about 210 or even 310 now. So uh, wow. yeah. You've got to be the right person to ask about what makes a digital leader and why, why you need to be one in this day and age. Okay, well, I think maybe, maybe a kind of vignette um, to kind of illustrate uh, exactly what I mean here is I was uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was delivering a morning of executive education um, to the board of a major pharmaceutical uh, organization. Uh, and there was uh, somebody, um, somebody there who said, well, before we get started, Mark, I just want to sort of make one thing clear. Here at XYZ Industries, uh, we make drugs. 
That's what we do. That's how we make money. And the minute you know, the minute we take our eye off that uh, that motion, we make we make drugs. We're dead. I guess about ten years ago, I would have been terrified by somebody like that. You know, all the, all the assurance of, of a legacy organisation at the top of their tree, lots of experience, obviously loads of domain uh, understanding as well. Um, but I have to say, um, uh, getting uh, after the experience I've had and getting to where I am now. Um, I absolutely had the confidence just to say, well, um, I hope in three or four hours' time you'd agree with me, but I have to say I fundamentally disagree with you. So I, I basically said, unless you can lose uh, this mindset that what you do in this in this organization is to make drugs, um, you're going to be dead in 10 years. And why? Quick example there. Um, big technology um, is outstripping R&D investment in pharmaceuticals by about two and a half times uh, what pharma companies uh, can achieve. Uh, so they are absolutely going after a platform play, where in 10 years, a pharma will be about population health analytics. Uh, it'll be about keeping you well. We're all going to pay much more to, 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 to keep well than we are uh, somebody to, to sell us a few drugs when we get sick. And of course, there'll be Internet of Things and wearables, and it will be about data and health insurance and, and all sorts of that stuff. And there'll be a place to go. Um, so, so that's you know, again, that was a, a session that started off with some of the fundamentals, literally about why the internet is is turning the world upside down. Um, I often uh, included a bit of a challenge. So, um, many many listeners will be familiar with Klaus Schwab, the Davos guys' uh, Fourth Revolution book. Um, but in it, it's some quite nice material that, that kind of collects together a whole bunch of, of these new and emerging cloud-based technologies and services. So whether it's yeah, whether it's IoT with advanced analytics or whether it's blockchain sort of distributed ledger, all of these new data-driven technologies that increasingly chop human beings out of the loop um, on, on one side and then takes a whole bunch of industries. And I, I kind of often just throw it open to the, to, to the group and say, challenge me. Think of a single sector or industry where if you're a chief exec who's, who's worth their salt, you're not lying awake at night worrying about what the internet and, 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 and latest generation internet technologies are going to do to your business. Um, because, because if you're not, uh, in my, in my view, you should be. So I think it's, it's very much about business model redesign. It's about how, how do we deliver value, uh, in the internet age? Uh, and also it's about just, I'm afraid, tackling some of the, some of the sacred cows in organizations. So. My definition of a legacy organization, by the way, is an organization that grew its sense of, of self-worth, its, its value propositions, and particularly its administrative infrastructure and systems and processes in the pre-internet era. In other words, the, the, the pre-mature internet era that we're, we're living in now. So, so, you know, at a stroke, a whole bunch of things that used to be done again and again and again, a bit like, you know, building your own version of Google, um, are now completely worthless. And we see this, you know, uh, as, as one or two people who know me, you know, I talk about a lot, we see it in, in local government. You know, we've got uh, 430 councils in, in, in the British Isles, um, all doing slightly different versions of the same thing, whilst cutting frontline public services, doctors, teachers, nurses, social workers, daycare centres, etc. Um, and, and I think it's pretty plain over the next 20 or 30 years, I'm not naive, it'll be a real struggle. Um, it'll take a while, but I think eventually um, quite a lot of the back-end administration and common processes will be streamed like Netflix. Now, that's a chief exec discussion. That's a discussion for Solace. It's a discussion for MHCLG. It's a ministerial discussion. Um, and it's a shame, isn't it, that um, at the time when public services are under, under strain as never before, that in fact that kind of agenda 
the, the how to be a, a, a real digital leader um, uh, in, in the age of, of public service cuts uh, from a business model perspective just isn't up there. And I think we're all the poor for it. Um, so I think there are some real challenges there. I think it's about, so it's about challenging some of those, um, some of those kind of sacred cows. I think it's also, you've got to reconfigure around the customer. You have to tackle your legacy. You've got to choose some sort of digital platform. It almost doesn't matter which one it is. Um, you've got to get on with it though. You've got to get a grip on your data and you've got to tackle your culture. And those things are all terribly, terribly hard things to do in large, legacy organizations which are addicted to different ways of doing things which is why digital change has to come from the very very top i personally don't believe in in cdos uh, i think cdos are a little bit of a abnegation of responsibility from, from the leader it allows the leader to say well that digital stuff there it's 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 a kind of you know configuration of technology and, and purchasing choices uh, it's not it's about business model it's about culture and it's about driving through those very, very difficult conversations. So I think there are lots of examples about how people have done it successfully. You know, if you, if you look at the, for example, the Financial Conduct Authority's Open Banking Initiative in January last year, a phenomenal kind of turnaround where not only did the FCA start to think of itself as a regulator, as, as it used to always will be, um, but it also began to say, well, look, there's all these retail banks over here sitting on mountains of consumer data. And if that stuff was aggregated and cleaned properly um, with, with, with our kind of uh, permission, we could actually release some of those data patterns uh, and just see what sort of economic activity that starts to generate. So, so you know, rather than just considering itself as a regulator to, to, to kind of prosecute people when they, when they trade badly, the FCA is now starting to think in the digital era of its role as a, as a socioeconomic engine of the City of London. Now, that's a phenomenal uh, kind of uh, re-understanding of, of what it's there to do as a business. We all know about the DFT and, and City Mapper example. So rather than trying to build its own uh, timetabling kind of apps, uh, which which obviously they would have done uh, of old, uh, the DFT just released a whole ton of data as a platform, um, and 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 all sorts of people can now use it and build things that the DFT would never never possibly have the resources uh, to, to do itself. And there are, there, are, there are other examples of methods. We've done a really nice, uh, very interesting example recently, um, working with Land Registry. Uh, it's a project called Digital Street, uh, and it's using the Corda blockchain um, technology to effectively um, uh, do a demonstration, a kind of proof of concept of how a distributed ledger uh, could be used to radically redesign the conveyancing process. In theory, you know, um, rather than buying a house, you know, costing thousands of pounds and, and many stressful months, um, we think ultimately the whole thing could be done uh, for a matter of a few hundred pounds uh, in a few days. And those things have got to be, they're disruptive, but they've got to be a good thing ultimately. I mean, you're, you've just mentioned the, uh, the magic word blockchain there. One of the challenges for digital leaders is, I mean, I think, you know, people got their head around UX and CX and and sort of sorting out their front end to make it digitally friendly, if that's the right word. And then I think everybody, I hope certainly everyone in digital leaders is now on this journey of kind of end-to-end change, that digital transformation yeah. something your customers do. It's something you do, and you've spoken about sort of the role of the chief exec and the kind of quasi-CDO and, and, and those issues. But where... I mean, now we, we seem to be into a third wave of digital change. We've got blockchain, AI, all sorts of new techs coming on. So what does the digital leader do about that? Is it something they've just got to sit down and understand? Or 
are these services now being delivered in a way where you can pull them down and use them as and when you need them without that's a, that's a great question. stuff yeah great question i can't wait to get into it <laughs> so so someone like uh, uh schwab in this fourth revolution book would say well most organizations are stuck in i guess what he would call a third revolution which is the internet exists websites and email exists but fundamentally you know we've got to have a good website we've got to interact with our customers in a very friendly way um uh but fundamentally that the remains of the business kind of pretty much remains unchanged. So that we sort of put up those things as a kind of umbrella and just cower under that and hope that it's all going to be okay. And the point is, is this fourth revolution stuff that we've just been talking about, uh, these data-driven technologies that pretty much exist in, in the cloud. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, they, they chop people out, which, which means that, of course, we talk about velocity. In other words, uh, as soon as people take people out of the loop, you can redesign services on the fly, be far more data-driven, uh, and you need to be far more on top of that and fluid in your organizational structure. You know, I, I still recommend the best video I've ever seen on this. Uh, he and I have made a subsequent one, which just wasn't quite as good as his, his fantastic original one, was Mark Foden's video, The Governs of Governments. And anybody who hasn't seen that, it's, it's you know, four or five years old now. It only takes three and a half minutes. I think it's the most brilliant piece of explanation of a difficult concept I've ever seen. It's on YouTube. But basically, uh, Mark distinguishes between specific gubbins and uh, common gubbins. So he basically says, you know, any, any major organization, if you're looking at what you've got to do, you've got your kind of levers and dials, which is your sort of public interface. He's not too interested in that. You've got your, your, your enabling infrastructure. That's your kind of pipes and wires at the bottom. He's not too interested in that. What he's interested in is this gubbins bit in the middle, which is, of course, all of those legacy processes that, that, that major organizations are struggling with. And to answer exactly your question, you know, what, what do I consume? Which of these new technologies? do I use? Where are the opportunities to do that? Um, versus where is the stuff that we should retain in our organization? And it's really worth a, worth a look. Of course, what's happened now uh, is, is this whole need to distinguish between your specific gubbins, the stuff that you add value by doing, and your common gubbins, which is often a lot of that enterprise stuff, which really has no business left in your organization really anymore. Um, that, is, that is a precursor to understanding where you can start to use some of these some of these amazing uh, new technologies so uh, specifically what's happened in the landscape is is for you know for the last 10 years quite a lot of the discussion was certainly in public services where you've got kind of gds and they're building some new uh, some, some new platforms and you've got the sort of uh, the old legacy sort of environment and it was kind of government sitting kind of in the middle of that trying to make sense of that i think regardless frankly whether you're government or private sector or third sector the current landscape is a bit different we have the emergence of big tech and i'm thinking of course i'm thinking of the azure cloud i'm thinking of aws uh, which has a, a stunning array of consumable uh, commodities and services and processes in there um, so all of these these big tech providers are going hell for leather to supply a lot of these, these, these bits of infrastructure. So things that we would have spent a lot of money to build, like analytics capabilities, for example, or, or kind of satellite link-up stuff, you can just consume that stuff uh, like electricity out of the, some of these cloud environments. So you don't need to build it yourself if you treat it like kind of common gubbins. So on the one hand, we've got big tech, 
And on the other hand, of course, we've got the explosion in startups. And, um, and many people will be aware of, of um, public.io, uh, stewarded very ably by Daniel Korski. So they had a very successful um, uh, launch uh, or a big event in Paris last year where a lot of the world woke up to GovTech as a thing. But of course, uh, we're used to thinking about health tech and fintech and reg tech and all sorts of other technology clusters, which are looking, of course, also to leverage the big technology people and, and eat a lot of those incumbents stuck in the middle alive. Government is no different. In other words, as an incumbent, government faces uh, straight sections of what it does being eaten alive by some of the major technology providers with some of these uh, cloud-based infrastructure and services, which are just becoming too good to ignore. And on the other hand, we're seeing uh, very uh, kind of innovative startups um, all over the place, great clusters of them that are attacking particular functions within government and saying, hey, you can do it much better using some of our, our new technologies. That, I think, is a new landscape. It's one where I think GDS itself um, uh, will have to rethink its role. I don't think digital and government will be about predominantly about public servants developing government uh, digital technology. There'll be, there'll be a place for that as ever. But I think we need to be far more savvy about the, about the digital tsunami, which is, which is happening, unfolding uh, right now. So it's an understanding of the market landscape, uh, really. So there's a lot going on at the moment. Where it's going to end up, we don't know. But people like me are very interested in some of the questions about where this is heading. Uh, and I think there have been, as I mentioned already, um, uh, you know, one or two large questions being asked now about where some of this, particularly some of this big tech is heading us in terms of data stewardship uh, and privacy. And I think there are some emerging, even larger questions, frankly, about how, as some of these large companies assume more and more role of, as a kind of public infrastructure provider, Actually, we, we, we find it very, very useful to consume a lot of these things, but we've got to remember that they're not public infrastructure, they're private infrastructure. So there's a big question for the state, how far, where, what is the role of the state here? How can we benefit from all these fantastic digital services, which to be honest, we're not ever really going to be able to build uh, as, as in our case, UK government, whilst also being very, very cautious about handing over the keys to too much of our public infrastructure to, to people, frankly, that, that increasingly I think the public are, are coming to distrust. That was the thing that I was thinking about as you were talking about sort of the, the idea of these big platforms kind of being able to provide and replace a lot of these services that kind of we've had a little warning, haven't we, with Facebook and some of the other Instagram and, you know, kind of some of the other things happening that at the consumer level, things can get out of hand and, and be manipulated politically and democratically. So if I'm in the public sector, on the one hand, I'm being encouraged to build things myself by people like GDS and uh, MHCLG and, and others. And on the other hand, there are affordable solutions on AWS and Azure and other platforms where... How do I go about thinking that through? Or is it just too big a question? Well, again, it's not a great question. I don't really have a clear answer. I mean, I think I, I always had, a, I think, a slightly different vision for what I'd hoped, um, I think, GDS might come. Um, I've always taken the view that the UK government, uh, no matter how great a lot of their people, and you know, a lot of great people working in digital UK government, but that it could never really technologically compete um, with the investment models of big tech, but also in, in certain cases, some of the, the laser focus of some of these little startups as well. Um, and, and I guess it was always my view that, that actually government should have focused more on interpreting the service architecture uh, and, and providing 
consumption advice and, and, and you know, hard, hard architectural and, and, and procurement advice to government about how best to make use of uh, and, and, and in certain cases manipulate the market um, for its own ends um, and to make best use of emerging cloud-based technology and services. I, I don't want to over-criticize GDS because they, they do and have done some fantastic work. And actually, I think they're getting on with what, what they've been set up to get on with. Um, I think this, this almost goes higher uh, and it goes, it goes to a, a critique of the level of uh, real digital business education uh, within our leadership. Um, and that goes right to the top, in fact. Uh, without that and without that kind of emphasis, I think it's quite unclear, uh, uh, to answer your question, for many people in public services, what's the strategic response to the, the rapid emergence? And by the way, the flywheel is just beginning to get going now. So this stuff will accelerate um, the rapid emergence and, and deployment of these technologies. So, so I think the answer is, the, long, the, the medium-term answer is, please, more executive education. I think the world is full of digital training. Uh, and that's about inputs, uh, ultimately. It's less about executive education about digital and about technology and about its impact on, on, on the way we design our, our public services and, and, and businesses in the UK. Uh, that seems to be a huge emerging space um, for, for, for demand, which is, which is great for people like me. Um, but I think it's, it's a sad thing that we haven't got onto this much, much uh, sooner than we have. So we're sort of heading towards our quick fire round, but my last question really is what are you personally working on right now? So, so we we wearing a, a methods hat, uh, we've launched an emerging tech uh, group um, that are working on common reference architectures for a lot of these technologies. What do I mean by that? I mean that I think a lot of the discourse surrounding these things is often very breathless and optimistic. So sort of, you know, 87% of CTOs are identified I don't know, um, yeah, distributed ledger of blockchain is the must-have technology for 2019. And of course, it's just rubbish, a lot of that stuff. Um, so I think we have a resolutely business-oriented uh, focus towards these things. So um, we think that, for example, if you are a regulator in government, whether you work in the city, whether you work in healthcare regulation, and, 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 uh, and we work in both of those areas, um, actually, a great proportion of what you do as a regulator is far more similar, regardless of the sector that you work in, whether it's the city or whether it's healthcare regulation. Um, so we would like to, to have conversations with people across government, for example, regulators, and, and we hope to be doing that later in the year, that say, well, actually, about 30 to 40% of what you guys do is the same. And therefore, you have quite similar use cases um, across some of these things and opportunities, therefore, to drive consumption of some of these uh, zippy new uh, similar technologies, but only when you can prove that there's a use case for it, and certainly not before. And the last thing you want to do is independently to start sort of building and bolting on um, these technologies uh, without getting a grip on actually, you know, what, uh, what digital business does, which is, which is really to, to make you understand that quite a lot of what you do, you should be consuming uh, quite similarly to other people and then focusing very, very hard on, 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 on where, you, where you generate value. So I did a Computer Weekly blog last year called Focus and Leverage, actually, which, which went into that for anyone, uh, anyone who's interested. So, so that's, that's uh, wearing a methods hat, wearing a, an index, a, an academic hat. Um, actually, I'm, I'm doing a bit, bit of uh, work with, uh, with Liam um, in AWS. I think I can talk about that because we've, we've partnered up. Um, so... Uh, we're going to be uh, working together to create, I think, AWS's global public sector education program and working to deliver that uh, in various places around the world over the coming couple of years, really to, to address that, that need. In other words, to help 
Um, I, I understand from Liam that it's a uh, predominantly technology agnostic um, course. Obviously, it's sponsored by AWS, but this is about helping business, very senior government business leaders, to understand how to deal with the presence of the cloud uh, and how to take that forward um, across many of the dimensions that we've uh, discussed. Excellent. Thank you very much for sharing that. So let's finish on our quickfire round of three questions, Mark. So uh, what one book would you recommend to our listeners and why? This is uh, a very easy question. So um, I've been blown away recently by um, a book by Shoshana Zuboff. Uh, She's a prof at MIT. And it's called Surveillance Capitalism. Uh, unfortunately for people, it's, it's about 750 pages long. As brilliant as she is, I think she could have done with a damn good editor. Um, I think it could probably be about 350. But it is incredible. So she is the first person that I've seen, and I've read a couple of her other previous offerings. Um, she's the first person that I've seen to draw together this sense of growing unease um, with the idea that some of these large technology companies um, have had a bit of a kind of unregulated Wild West for the last 10 years. Uh, states, taxation systems, regulation, um, privacy laws, et cetera, have been far too slow to catch up. And when they have started to catch up, they've been fragmented around the world. Um, and, and she advances this notion that some of these, uh, some of this kind of panoply of, of services um, and infrastructure is beginning to knit, up, knit, literally knit together above our heads that we could end up getting entrapped by it. It's a truly eye-opening read. I've only got to about chapter four. I did say it's a 750-odd it's a uh, page book and I only bought it um, about 10 days ago. Um, but it's, it's absolutely fascinating. And for anybody who is kind of interested in some of the kind of, um, uh, some of, the kind of uh, warning side of the conversation we just had, um, uh, I would absolutely recommend that. I think you really enjoy it. Brilliant. Uh, and a potential podcast guest in the future, by the sounds of it. Shoshana Zuboff, yes, indeed, yeah. Uh, the one person I would love to have lunch with and why? So I thought about this, and I think um, I, I'm not going to be too original here because um, because we've been talking about some, some big questions, um, and I'd actually like to pit two of them together. Um, so a couple of days ago, many people would have seen of course, that Tim Berners-Lee uh, released a letter 30 years after um, uh, the successful demonstration of the World Wide Web. Um, he's also very concerned about where things are heading um, um, and probably would, wouldn't disagree with some of, some of the things um, that, that I've, I've said today. Um, I would love to get him opposite. Um, why not? Opposite Jeff Bezos. Why Bezos? Not, not because of the, not for the usual breathy questions about how are you so successful and how did you become the world's richest man, but actually because it seems to me that Bezos has, has, has said that he would like, he believes Amazon is an infrastructure company. So we may have thought of Amazon as being a platform business, which it is, but actually it has ambitions to become a global infrastructure company, if not potentially the global infrastructure company. And therefore, um, uh, going right to the heart of some of the concerns I have about encroachment of public domain via uh, uh, via huge private sector um, cloud beer moths. So I'd quite like to put um, yeah, so Tim and Jeff together, um, kick them off with something like that and see how it unfolded. Sounds like a very good lunch. Um, and last but not least, the one thing people would be surprised to learn about you is? I suppose um, as somebody who kind of writes a lot and talks a lot about, about digital and about being connected, my wife and I have recently moved to a, uh, an off-grid um, cottage, uh, which um, is completely disconnected um, from, from the grid. Uh, so it's, it's at the top of a, a kind of rough track. It provides a lot of silence and solitude and time to think. 
I have managed to uh, to arrange a 4G connection, which is surprisingly good, um, but it goes off uh, sometimes as well, except, uh, except, of course, when either of my teenage uh, children is around. Wow. So digitally... But I can recommend it. You can recommend it. Go on, t- talk briefly about that. So should we all digitally detox? Well, well I think, you know, there's, there's, there's something about the... I think you know, we, we live in digital bubbles, obviously. Um, I, I'm, I'm super conscious also that there is a sort of a sort of digerati bubble in London itself, isn't there? A lot of that, a lot of that tweeting and, and, and conversation. Um, and uh, I'm not, of course, the first person to to value uh, somebody that spends uh, quite a bit of time immersed in that. Um, yeah, the ability to just take control back, or at least at least be under the illusion that you're taking control back into your life. Uh, and, and I can recommend it for that, uh, you know, for that reason. Yeah, it's great. Brilliant. Okay. So sadly, Mark, we're out of time. Thank you for being on today's Digital Leaders podcast. Thank you very much. It's been a great honor. That is it for this episode of the Digital Leaders podcast. Now, of course, we would love to know your thoughts. Tag us at, at DigiLeaders and let us know. And if you want to find out more about today's guest, head on over to our website, digileaders.com forward slash podcast, and we have all that information there. That is it for this week. I'm your host, Robin Knowles. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back soon with another episode of the Digital Leaders Podcast.